This morning we're going to be in Ephesians 1, and this is, this is what we're going to do. So last week we, we saw ourselves kind of coming out of, out of that, that last section there that ended in, in 14, talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing and being a guarantee for us. And, and this week we're going to begin at what 15 through 23 is not another one of those large sections. But as I looked at it, and, and I'm one of these guys, man, I like to check things off a list. I like to move through things uh, quickly. And so I was initially going to do 15 through 23, and then I looked at it, and I was just destroyed at the beauty in this text. And I was really challenged with how can we possibly look at it and march through it and, and get it and apply it to our lives if I've got to hit the whole thing at 30,000 feet. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read today uh, 15 through 19 because this is really kind of the first movement. And then 20 through 23 is is something we'll hit later. But in terms of those of you who like to make lists, you like to know where we're going in the bold landscape and all these things, today I'm going to do 15 through 17. Next week, Timer Hartley's going to preach. And and he's not going to do uh, 18 and 19. Timer and Marianne were missionaries in Israel for a number of years, over a dozen years, and so he's going to come share with us what the Lord has put on his heart, and then we're going to have a variety of sermons throughout Easter, kind of highlighting things, and then we'll pick back up in Ephesians in January. Now, there are those of you who, because we're taking December off, you're going to say, did he just give up on Ephesians? Did it get too hard? It is hard. It's a tough book, but no, we're going to come back to Ephesians in January. But let me Let me read for us 15 through 19, and then we're going to walk 15 through 17, okay? 15 through 19. If you have a copy of God's Word, feel free to open up. If not, some of this will be on the screen. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And check out 18 and 19. This is the substance of that prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So we're going to do 18 and 19 another time. Today we're going to do 15 through 17. As we open up 15 through 17, Paul has this this kind of summary statement. He says, for this reason. And so you can go a a couple of different ways with this. You can either look at it and say, for this reason, now he's about to give us this reason. You can say, for this reason, he's reflecting on the reason he's already given. And so let's let's take it as a, a both directions type of approach, okay? And so if he says, for this reason, and he's looking backwards and he's looking forwards, we're gonna come to what's forwards, but let's remind ourselves of those things that we've just covered. He says, for this reason. Now, he's zeroing in, I think, specifically on, on 13 and 14 and kind of what's, what's happened there. But let's pick it up. He says that, that, that those who were far off, you remember we discussed it, that in verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's talking about who? Jewish background believers. And then in verse 13, he shows us 
It shows us this amazing combination of Jews and Greeks, of Jews and Gentiles, of people who had a pagan background and people who had a Jewish background, okay? Do you recognize that? Do you see that? People who recognize God in the Jewish context and people who recognize either themselves as God or Caesar as God or some foreign deity as God. They were, they were pagans. They were pagans. But in 13, he says, in him you also. So they were grafted in. They were brought into Jesus. He says, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. You were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And so what we saw in the first section, so in 3 through 14, is that we are to be worshipers of God. If you didn't get that, go back and read it, listen to the sermons again. But 3 through 14 lays out soundly that we are to be worshipers of God. We worship him because he had a plan. That before any of us drew breath, before God spoke and created, God had a plan. He had a way that he was going to bring about the redemption of humanity. We worship God because he has brought about redemption in us through the blood of his son. And last week we looked at it, we worship God because as we recognize, he has sealed us. He has put his seal upon us. He has firmly established our salvation and he will preserve our salvation to the end. Amen? God is making us, he has made us worshipers in those things he has done for us through his planning, through his son, and through the sending and anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Paul comes into verse 15, he says, for this reason. In essence, he's saying, now that you're ready, now that you understand who you are, now that you understand that you've been brought in, for this reason, I want you to understand the way that I, Paul, see you, Ephesians, those in Ephesus. And he writes and he says two things about them. He says, I've heard two things about you, and then I'm praying for specific things for you. But the two things he's heard about them are are so elementary in some sense that we read them and just say, these are good things. These are good things. And we blow right past it. Because you want to get into the rich meat in 18 and 19, right? And so when you read through this, you get into 18 and 19, you're just, oh man, this is so good. The riches of his, oh goodness, this is so great. Oh, we just need this, we just need this. But you, you come to 15 and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. They like people, they had faith, everybody needs faith. Everybody needs love. 16, yeah, yeah, he's praying without ceasing. Matt, can we get to 18 and 19? Because that's the that's good meaty stuff. I could chew on that all day. But look what he says here in 15. He says he's heard two things about them. He's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love towards all the saints. We can't miss that. We read a a variety of letters in the New Testament, ones that are more occasional, and Paul comes in and he's just reaming people. He says, you're messing up? This is how? This is how you fix it and bring your lives back in. And so we read Ephesians and he's nice to them. He's kind to them. And in fact, in 15, he writes and he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul, sitting in a Roman prison, hears about this group that he spent two to three years working Paul invested himself for two to three years in this church plant, growing it up, left and moved on. And after some considerable time later, what does he hear about them? He hears of their faith. And so it's not that Paul gets this response and, hey, Paul, this is how the Ephesians are doing. Just so you know, you know, uh, we've, got, we've got Aristarchus over there. And he's, well, you know, he's, he was a jerk when you were there. He's still a jerk. 
We've got, we've got Penelope. Well, you remember the rash she had. Well, it's, it's gotten better. But, brother, she's got some other problems. We just wish the rash was back. That was the only thing she had going on. Paul hears about these Ephesians and the thing that he is floored about, the thing that he is up, I mean, just really excited about is their faith in the Lord Jesus. This is amazing. Paul hears about a church and he doesn't hear about problems. He hears instead about their faith in the Lord Jesus. How amazing would that be? You know, you go around town, you go in any town, in, in the south anyway, and you walk around and you talk to enough people and you say, tell me about this church. And they'll say, well, you know, about 10 years ago they had a rough. About five years ago, this is the way they made this mistake. About six years ago, this is what they did. Oh man, that's just a church of old people. That's just a church of young people. That's just a church of dinks, double income, no kids. That's just a church of this. That's just a church of that. Paul writes to these Ephesians, and what he says about them is, I heard about your faith. People talk about this church in Ephesus, and you know what they say? These people believe in Jesus. That says something about a way a church sets down what it wants to be known as in the community. You can be known for a, a lot of things in the community. You can be the people that give the most stuff away. You can be the people with the nicest building. You can be the people with the best music. You can be the people with the youngest preacher. You can be the people that, that, that dress the nice, that have the nicest cars, that have the roughest parking lot. You can be the people that have a variety of things, but if you're not the people that have faith in Jesus and that is what defines you, you've lost it. So he writes about them and he says, what I'm so excited about, what I've heard about you, and one of the reasons I'm writing to you is because you have been faithful with what you have received. We recognize that God enacted a plan, that God brought that plan, plan to life in time through Jesus and his shed blood, that God brought that plan to reality. He visited upon them in the sealing of the Holy Spirit when they believed, when they responded to faith. But what is carried on, what has been consistent about them is their faith in Jesus. Oh, that people would say that about us. Oh, that people would say that about the churches of our community. You realize every week when I come up and I pray for the other churches in our community, I've got this, this vision of what it would look like if all the churches in our community would just get over small things and focus on Jesus. And so all the things I pray for the other churches in our community, I'm praying for us too, that we wouldn't squabble, bicker, fight, be upset and, and wrangle over things, but instead we would make the main thing Jesus, our faith in him and making him famous in our community because that is where Paul comes to these Ephesians at. Collectively, that's what we've got to be. In, in, in your homes, that's who you have to be. In your work, that's who you have to be. Men, that's what your wife needs to say is the most important characteristic in your life, that you are making much of Jesus, that she sees that, that your kids see that, that when she meets your coworkers, that's what they see. It can't be, oh, your husband, he's such a great provider. You're so lucky to have him. He's such a great provider. And he has aged so well, girl. All of our families 
You need to set Jesus at the center. All of our students, you need to set Jesus at the center so that when you go into, into high school, junior high, elementary school, or college, that when you're in these classes, that people recognize you're not looking for academic success, you're not looking for athletic success and notoriety, you're not looking to be the best and brightest in your future professions and to make everybody happy. But what you're looking to do is set your faith in Jesus Christ over everything else. And you live in a culture, you live in a society that, that says, Man, that is a tertiary thing. That's at best a a third or fourth level thing that you should set as the highest. And they might say funny things to you like, how are you going to feed your family on faith? How are you going to take care of business on faith? How are you going to be a man when you set faith as the highest thing for yourself? And I would submit to you and I would challenge you that if you're not setting faith your faith in Jesus Christ. Hear me on this. If you're not making that your number one pursuit, all of your other pursuits are faulty. All of your other pursuits are empty. So Paul writes to them and he says, I'm floored. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, he couples that and he turns and he pivots. He's talked about their faith, and that's kind of this nebulous thing that we look at, and we're like, what does that even look like? Well, their faith is met out in love. These people love one another. Paul writes, he says, because I've heard of your faith and your love toward all the saints. Your faith and your love toward all the saints. These people genuinely liked one another. We're like, no, come on now. During the greeting time, everybody likes one another. Hey, man you doing oh yeah handshake 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 oh i got a week to do that again they loved each other they're in each other's homes they're in each other's places of business they're doing life with one another they actually love one another and where do they get that from do you think do you think this is just a group of like-minded people like this church got set up in ephesus and they're like look we're all engineers we can't have anybody with a liberal arts degree. You people are just driving me crazy. Everybody with a liberal arts degree, out of here. All you engineers come over here. I've got all the minutes laid out for our first church meeting. I'm sorry, that's out of order. It wasn't that they were all like-minded in their hobbies or their professions or things that particularly interested them. They were like-minded in their faith in Jesus. But where do you think they got that from? Flip over to John 13. This is a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal to Jesus. When I first started here at Ridgecrest, I wanted us to understand that the gospel needs to be at the foremost of kind of who we are and this driving force in that. And I wanted us to do it together. So I chose Philippians. I chose Philippians because I wanted us to be faced with the idea that that I'm going to be on a pew with someone who disagrees with me. I'm going to sit on a pew. I'm going to be in Sunday school. I'm going to be in a life group. I'm going to be in a church as a member when somebody who just, they don't like the way I smell. They don't like the car I drive. They don't like the way I walk. They don't like the way I talk. Something about me is going to irritate them and likely something about them is going to irritate me. And Philippians basically says, get over it. Like, everybody stinks to someone. 
It says, get over it and be unified over the gospel and come together for the gospel. But where do we think that these crazy people in Ephesus get off loving one another? What are they trying to prove? Look what Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And it lays us waste. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We see they had faith. But it was manifested in their treatment of one another. It was manifested in how they responded to one another. They loved one another. Have you ever tried to love someone and and yell at them and belittle them at the same time? You can't do it. There are things that you can't think and say about certain people if you're loving them. You just can't do it. And so that's why as parents, we find ourselves with children and the children do something wrong and you just, you you know, they had a demon and now it's in you. And so you go and you're just like, ah, I would do that. I can't, what is that? You're like, what? Why did you think painting with that was a good idea? I thought it was pretty. And afterwards, we feel terrible. We're like, how did I show the gospel? How did I show love to my child in that moment? I lost it. And that's why we go to our children, we apologize and say, look, dad shouldn't have talked to you like that. Dad sinned in his treatment of you. Dad has asked God to forgive him. And I'm also asking you if you would forgive me for the way that I spoke to you. Man, there are a lot of us who would be able to love one another a lot more if we would recognize the wrongs that we have done on our brothers and sisters in Christ and we would go to them and say, I have wronged you. I confess that to God. I'm asking you to forgive me. There are still others of us in this room that you would be able to love people that you're harboring resentment with or two a lot more if you would quit trying to hold on and be the person that gets to dole out forgiveness. You've been forgiven so much in Jesus and he calls us to forgive others. In fact, he even says, if you hold on to forgiveness, if you refuse to forgive others, neither will you be forgiven. Some of you, the reason you're so miserable and you're so unhappy and in your lives is because you're refusing to let other people experience forgiveness. And you expect things to go well in your life, but you're harboring resentment. You're, you're expecting people to come and apologize to you the way that you want to be apologized to. You need to let God work it out in this person's life. But you need to extend forgiveness and open up the possibility of restoration in your relationships. Paul writes to them and he says, you need to love one another. They get that from Jesus. Now look how else we see this described in this letter, look over in chapter four, back in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In essence, he's saying, people be difficult. They're gonna frustrate you. Best friends fight. Husbands and wives fight. Parents and children fight. Bear with one another in love. You're having difficulty in your relationship, that doesn't mean you need to end it. 
bear with one another in love, 4.2. Look at 15 and 16, same chapter. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Now, a lot of you, you run roughshod over that. You're just, you're, you're kind of a jerk. And people have asked me to tell you this. Now everybody's thinking, who asked him to? T-? I looked at everybody, myself included. And so it's this idea, speaking the truth in love is not saying whatever you want and telling people that you love them. And so this is not speaking the truth in love. Joe, you're a terrible person. I really wish you would just go away. Love you, man. Love you. Take that with love. Speaking the truth in love isn't me going to Ben and say, Ben, you know, we spent a considerable amount of time together. And let me just tell you all the ways that you've disappointed me and become just a terrible person. Let me count the ways. You chew loud. You breathe loud. You drag your feet when you walk. I really wish your hair was longer. But I love you, man. Ben doesn't do any of those things, to my knowledge. Some of you might have a different feeling. Speaking the truth in love is not going to somebody and rattling off a list of things you don't like about them and then saying, but you know what, I love you, and that's why I shared that with you. Speaking the truth in love has to come from a place where you actually love that person. This is what this could look like. Speaking the truth in love, would I still continue to love this person if this action did not change? Is the way that I go and say this to them the way that I would like someone to say it to me? Speaking the truth in love. They speak the truth in love, we grow we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He's talking about the fact that love produces spiritual maturity. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. When the church does what it's supposed to do internally, it produces love. When the church does what it's supposed to do internally, it produces love. It, it helps us to love one another. It helps us to bear up under the especially difficult members. But when the church is doing, when it's ministering to itself, when its members are submitting themselves mutually to one another in reverence to Christ, it produces love. But there is something even more amazing in Romans 5. In Romans 5 and verse 5, we read this. And hope does not shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The whole reason you're able to love people who everybody else considers to be unloving is because God has done an amazing work in you. He's poured love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul isn't assuming that they're doing an amazing feat. He's not assuming that they're, not, that they're doing something that can't be replicated elsewhere. He's assuming that they're doing something through the anointing, through the apportioning, gifting of the Holy Spirit. It's the whole reason we're able to get along and agree. It's not because we don't go through difficult things together. It's not because we sweep things under the rug. It's because we work it out in love. God's Holy Spirit, which has sealed us, which indwells us, which is convicting us of sin, is also guiding us in love. Amen? 
calls on us to love one another. How many times have you actually seen this? Churches you've been a part of. This church. Churches you've heard of. That the key demographic represented in the body is people that are faithful and that love well. It's not a white church, it's not a black church, it's not a Hispanic church, it's not an old church or a young church. It's a church that's faithful and that loves well. This is the challenge, is it not? This is the challenge. And the effort and the energy demanded of us, if this is to be a reality, is full submission to Jesus Christ. When we have a full, vibrant understanding of the plan that he had for us, the enacting in time of his saving us, and the high cost of that, and the powerful ceiling that he's put upon us, we begin to get to a place where this could head towards being a reality for us. But a church is a corporate identity. A church is a corporate identity. And so many of us enter into this relationship and we treat it like speed dating. Try it on for a little while, we see how it goes, see if the, the conversation's comfortable and there's a lot of good give and take. They have a good personality. Do they want, are they clingy? Are they naggy? Because you know, I don't, I don't want a nagging church. How do the people make me feel? Do they love me? Do they scratch my itch? Are they meeting the needs that I have? Our tendency is to treat our relationship with the church like dating. Now, a lot of you, it's been quite a while since you dated. And some of you back in then, you called it courting. Some of you call it courting now, and that's just confusing for me. Let's just stick with one term. Let's call it dating, okay? You're trying out a relationship to see if you want it to be permanent. But for whatever reason, we've moved into this idea that this dating phase of involvement with church never ends. I don't know how many couples you know that, that date for an extended period of time. Valerie and I dated for nearly five years. She would not commit. <laughs> really thought I had you there. She was ready to commit on the second date. I'm just that good. <laughs> Let's just say it's somewhere in the middle, okay? She's not here to defend herself. <laughs> Luckily, she won't listen to this. Why did I go there? Those couples that have insanely long dating relationships, and so they get through, they recognize what all their problems are, they recognize that, you know what food allergies they have. They get to know all of these details with one another, but they're not committing to the relationship. And so somebody says, hey, have you ever considered you know, marrying that girl? And the guy says, man, I've certainly considered it, but things are just so good right now. I just don't want to mess it up, you know? You know? And no, I don't know. I've not been dating you for a decade. And people have all kinds of reasons for not wanting to make things official. Well, man, if I make it official, what if, what if I make it official and something goes wrong? 
What if I, what if I make it official? What if I you know, decide to get married to this girl and then something goes terribly wrong in the middle of it? You know what my response is? It will. You guys don't fight now? Like the reason it's great for you now is because you fight and you're like, oh, well, I'm gonna take my stuff and leave. And, 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 and there's no feeling that it's been this exacting deal, like you're removing something from yourself. Church should not be this way. But people date church. They want church to meet their needs. They want church to make them feel better, to tell them they're pretty, to tell them things are gonna go well for them, but they don't wanna commit themselves to church. Just as it's a terrible idea in a dating relationship, it's a horrible idea for us in life to approach church in such a way that we think that we can date, loosely engage, but not commit. Let's move off that. Paul tells them, he says, look, you guys have great faith, you have great love, you love one another. This is what a church should be. And so I don't cease to give thanks for you, verse 16, remembering you in my prayers. What Paul paints here in verse 16 is in somewhat a little bit of hyperbole. Obviously, Paul is doing other things, right? And so it's not that he, he just constantly submits himself to only praying for this Ephesian church. Because if that's what he's doing, he can't pray for others at the same time, can he? So what Paul is describing likely is this three periods a day when Paul would enter to pray, or tradition tells us that's what it would likely look like. So in the morning, he wakes up and he's remembering these Ephesians. He's making mention of them in his prayers. It gives us this understanding and this idea that his prayer was specific. He was specifically mentioning them by name. So he wasn't entering into a kind of this idea of a catch-all prayer. Oh God, I pray that you be with everybody everywhere, covering all things for them at all times and helping all the stuff to work out or not work out as they would like or not like to happen. Amen. Oh, in the name of Jesus, amen. And other stuff too, amen. He was praying specific prayers for these people. I submit to you that as you pray for people, as you pray for people in their situations, you will find yourself loving them. You will find yourself being moved by emotion for them because you're investing yourself in them. You're asking the supernatural God of all the universe to do something for them. And it's exacting for us. Prayer should be a, a joyful, but it should also be in some sense this anguish that it produces in us as we see disparity, as we see difficulty in the lives of our brothers and sisters in the lost. It should wreck us as we pray for them. If we don't pray for the lost with a smile on our face and say, God, I just pray that you would just, you know, just do some good stuff for them and help them feel really good about themselves. No. Like when I pray for my lost loved ones, when I pray for my lost friends and family, I am begging, I am pleading. I don't do it from a sense of indifference. I don't do it from a sense of, God, I really don't care if this works out. I do it because I want to see it come to be. And so I'm crying and I'm pleading and I'm begging God, bring salvation to them. 
when I meet with lost people, when they come into the church, when I meet them in the community, it's the same thing. I want to see God bring salvation from them. When I hear about those of you who are hurting, when life is just terrible for you, you're sick, your spouse is sick, your kids are sick, you're losing your job, life is miserable. Man, I am broken praying for you. But too many of us, we have this idea, and I don't know if this comes from nighttime prayers with kids where we go in and we try and cover everything all at one time. Like, I really don't know where this comes from, and I hope that's not where it is. But somewhere along the line, we got this idea that prayer is just, okay, I've got my prayer list, I'm just gonna burn through this real fast, God, because I got stuff to do, you know I'm tired. So God, let me pray for uh, the environment. That's a big thing. Let me pray for sin in somebody else's life. That's an easy thing. Let me pray for good sleep because now it's past my bedtime. And then God, let me, God, I'm sure there's stuff I've forgotten. I just pray that you pray. You wake up the next morning, you're like, man, I prayed for a long time then. Amen. Prayer is active engagement before the God of the universe. Do we get that? You know, for a long time, I entered into prayer super lightly. Because I, I had this idea in, in, in my mind, which it kind of articulated itself in my life, that, that God wasn't really all that concerned with what I say, just that I say it. Like, that I just kind of go through the motions, and so prayer for me was just one of these things I just kind of checked off. So this is, you know, like high school, early college. That I just, you know, God wants us to commune with him. He wants us to talk to him. But he's not really concerned with the way that we approach him. He's not really concerned with the way that, that, that it brings upon us. But for whatever reason, the way that I'm made. And so I, I began to, to really think that if it were on me to bring about change in these people, how much of myself would I invest in this? Recognizing that it's not on me, Right? There's no matter of investing yourself or earnestness in prayer that forces God to do something. And so if I want Joe to grow three more inches, like there's no matter of me begging and pleading and crying that's gonna hear, make God hear and say, so let it be written, so let it be done. And then Joe calls me and says, none of my pants fit. I got this gap. I'm like, that was me. I did that. God is the one moving and acting in prayer, Amen. Do y'all not believe that? God is the one moving and acting in prayer, amen? You guys really scared me. You can't do that. I'm just thinking, this is over two years I've been investing myself in here, and these people think that they're the ones at home that are like, oh, let it be raining tomorrow. And this guy on the other side of town's like, let it not stand back the heavens. And it's really whoever yells the most makes it happen. And I'm in the middle like, umbrella up, down, up, down. And then Carol B. prays, I'm like, oh, man. I might as well just give it up. Rosemary prays, and I'm just like, oh man, I hope she, I hope she remembers me tonight. Like it's not the force, the weight, and the magnitude of our prayer that brings these things to be, but it is the omnipotent, all-powerful God of the universe that is bringing these things to be in reality. Paul prays specifically for these people, and he prays this specific thing. He's remembering them in his prayers, but look verse 17. He is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, what a beautiful descriptor of God. He is the glorious one. He is the one who is the very weight of majesty. 
that he might give them a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him. Quite simply, Paul is praying that they know God more. And that's a beautiful thing. You see, we read this. And look back here in verse 15. He's heard of what? He's heard of their faith. So they know God, right? They know God. These people are saved, amen? These people are saved. They know God. And Paul has heard great things about them. He's heard of their faith. He's heard of their love. He's floored with that. And he's moving through. And he's making specific mention of them, praying that they know God more. That this glorious God, the Father, would give them a spirit would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Paul is praying specifically for this people that they might know him more. They have faith, he's asking for an increase. They have faith, they have love, he's praying and he wants them to know God, to know Jesus more. Why? Does he think it's impoverished? Does he think their understanding of who God is is impoverished? No. He said good things about them at this point. And in fact, look over in Philippians. Paul gives us an insight into what it is to grow in this. Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Philippians chapter 3 is an amazing chapter. You should read it this afternoon. Paul's talking about his standing as an Israelite. He's talking about his standing as a Jew. And how he is just, he's the top Jew. He's, he's, he's the top Pharisee. He is amazing in all of these ways. Like people look at Paul in his former way of life and they say, oh man, you know Paul, man, I wish I could be a Jew like Paul. Never be a Jew like Paul. Paul's the only Paul. It was Saul at that point, but let's get back to this. Verse eight. So he said all this great stuff about about himself. In verse 8 he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. You'll remember that when we went through Philippians, Paul is talking about excrement. All the accolades, all the pride, all the amazing things in Paul's life and he considers all of them human filth and excrement. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look at verse 10. For what purpose? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Paul wants to know him more. You see, Paul never thought that there was a time in his life that he could arrive at that he had perfect knowledge of God, that he had perfect knowledge of who Jesus is. Paul wants to know him more. Do you? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to submit other areas of your life to him? Do you want the God of the universe who rightly owns you? He purchased you through the blood of his son. 
Are you comfortable with me praying that you know him more? The line of what God has and controls in our life necessarily moves. He's taking in further areas of our lives as we continue to know him more and more. This prayer of for wisdom and revelation isn't so that we can navigate all the waters of life all the better. And what Paul's not doing is, is saying, <clears throat> God, I pray for wisdom for these folks because they're just silly. God, help them just to figure stuff out. And I pray for wisdom for them. There is a prayer for wisdom that people would be wise and be able to make good choices. This is not that prayer. The prayer Paul prays right here is a prayer that the wisdom, the revelation they grow in is a knowledge, would produce a knowledge of God more and more and more. There is no finish line outside of death or the return of Jesus for the Christian. There is no retirement for the Christian. There is no off-season for the Christian. Any plateau you've arrived at is not God saying, buddy coast. You just take it easy, my friend. Any plateau you've arrived at and find yourself on is an indication that you need to redouble your efforts at growing closer to God. Paul recognizes this Ephesian church on two marks, their faith and their love. And we recognize too that these are things that it, we need to be making our church known for. The way we love one another. And I tell you, and I hear all the time from people, Ridgecrest is the friendliest church I've ever been in. And I, I hear it more from people that are not huggers. I'm not a hugger myself. And <clears throat> most people, they're like, man, those people, I'm not a hugger. They love to hug. But they mean it as a good thing. We're a very friendly church. But are we a church characterized by love? There's a difference between friendliness and love. Let's not miss that. Are we continuing to grow in our faith and understanding of who God is as right worshipers of him on the basis of what he's done? And then lastly, are we broken for one another, interceding for one another, and praying that God would continue to reveal himself to us more and more. That's what's before us. That's what Paul shows us in Ephesians, and that's what he writes to a church who's doing well. How much more would he write to the American church today who struggles and stumbles so frequently right out of the gate? Let me pray for us.